Today on Building the Open Metaverse. I think the thing that inspires so many in the community is to say that if one of the brilliant things about the internet was that it operated as a de facto public good, unowned by anyone, the protocol sat outside of a company, the problem was it didn't go far enough. Welcome to Building the Open Metaverse, where technology experts discuss how the community is building the open metaverse together. Hosted by Patrick Cozy from Cesium and Mark Petit from Epic Games. Hello, my name is Mark Petit from Epic, and my co-host is Patrick Cozy from Cesium. Patrick, how are you? Hey, Mark, I'm doing great. We just got back from the ITSIC conference, and we just had our annual holiday party. So both those events start to signal the start of the holidays. Uh, but before we do that, we have a lot to talk about today. Yeah, and today what we want to do is close uh, season three of our podcast and close the year. And we thought we would invite one of our favorite guests, which we had already twice on the show, to get his perspective on where we are uh, with the metaverse at the end of 2022. So we're super happy to welcome Matthew Ball to our podcast. Hello, Matthew, and welcome back. Hey, guys. I'm so very excited to be here with you. Yeah, and you, you know, we kicked off with you the first episode, so you are very important to us. And what... Uh, uh, first, I think we need to introduce you. Um, you know, you're the CEO of Epilion Companies, and you're the author uh, who came out with this book, uh, The Metaverse, uh, earlier this year. And uh, of course, if you haven't read it, we think it's already a reference piece on the metaverse. So please pick it up uh, because I think you've done an excellent job of you know going against the hype and and asking the right questions and uh, setting the foundation for the metaverse. So thank you for that. So. Um, let's, uh, let's dive in. Um, first, I mean, go back a little bit about the book, you know, what, what compelled you to write such a, such a piece? It's a great question. So I started writing about the metaverse at the end of 2018. I was familiar with it for, you know, truly decades, but the honest answer is I was spending a lot of time on the Roblox platform. I was playing a ton of Fortnite. And I started to get this sense that this long considered fantastical idea was actually not just becoming a practical business opportunity, but indeed unfolding around us. And so that led me on this path of inquiry. I started writing and testing out theses and I was learning more and more, having conversations with individuals at Epic, at Cesium and others. And so over the ensuing three years, I started writing more and more. And I became increasingly convinced that it was imminent, that it was being built and that it was of profound consequence. At the time, the term had not been used publicly, really at all. Zuckerberg had never used the term in public. Satya Nadella hadn't. Tencent hadn't unveiled its hyper-digital reality strategy. And I thought that encapsulating everything that I had learned, everything I had seen in private research labs, the conversations with entrepreneurs who had truly spent decades fighting to build this thing, would be of value to builders, to governments, to individuals trying to get ready. And I thought it would be an extraordinary personal challenge as well. Uh, not the least of which was because shifting from a blog to the published word meant I could no longer patch it as I went. And then of course, you know, the term metaverse in 2021 exploded. And then I had my book come out in 2022. That was fortuitous but it started as a much smaller, more personal ambition early in 21. So was there any, um, when you launched the book, was there any big surprise, big ha-ha moment from, from that? Yes. I mean, look, a lot, of, a lot of it was good fortune that I think was years of preparation. But it was 
the launch was a lot bigger than I expected. It hit the national bestseller list in four different countries, the US, UK, Canada, and China. The general press coverage was much higher than I would have anticipated. And then, you know, most importantly, the breadth of the readership was wider than I expected, hitting industries that historically were not interested in GPUs and concurrency on a server, on asset pipelines, but were now really excited about the opportunity. And then one of the funnier parts that I got is I had one really significant email from a top exec at a very large tech company who's like, I read the book and I've come away convinced you don't believe the metaverse is possible. And that was because of the number of different technology challenges that I had outlined in the book. And so hearing the responses was pretty illuminating as well. So it's been already, what, six months? Yeah. Which is, uh, you know, an enormous amount of time at the metaverse speed. So are there any sections of the book that you think have, have not aged well or, have, uh, you know, that you, you would you look back and say things are very different now than what they were six months ago? Yes and no. So I had to lock the book in January and February. So it was already about five months, you know, quote unquote, behind daily news. In fact, I had to wrest control back from my publisher because a few days after I submitted the final draft, Microsoft announced that it was acquiring Activision Blizzard, the largest big tech acquisition in history. And in the last of a three sentence opening paragraph explaining the acquisition, Satya Nadella said that it was to provide the building blocks for the metaverse. So as I locked the book, I was very familiar with how the world would progress. But I also didn't write it to be a specific point in time. I was very focused on theses and beliefs and the multi-decade transformation. And so it was not designed to be super current. And so I think it's held up really well. The major things that I think are relevant is we have more evidence of the difficulties in XR hardware especially as the Quest Pro has come out at a very high price point and still falling short of what many consider to be min-spec. There was a lot of debate at the time as to the relevance of blockchain and Web3. At the time, the combined value of the crypto ecosystem was over $3 trillion. It's now at about $600 billion and rife with systemic risk, fraud, and collapses. That certainly throws water on some of those theses and is relevant. And then we just have this broader cooling of the market overall. The United States has encountered its first annual decline in gaming revenue in nearly 20 years. Gaming is not the metaverse. The metaverse does not require gaming per se, but it's relevant context. And it sits within a broader sell down of most tech companies that has brought into scrutiny whether or not hype for the metaverse outpaced the practical reality of when the products would be in market. I think that that's helpful color. Matthew, you touched on a lot of things. I want to go into more detail on, on this podcast. But first, I wanted to jump in uh, with a couple of personal thank yous. So, you know, the Cesium team and myself, we're, we're big fans of all your writing, your blog, your article, your book. And we want to do a big thank you for the signed copy of Time Magazine that I'm showing up for the folks watching us on video. Um, also, thank you for sending us the big poster of the signed Time Magazine. Well, thank you. That is that is proudly in our boardroom. It is only one of two things on the wall in our boardroom. Uh, then we also have a signed copy of your book uh, prominently displayed in our, in our library. So we appreciate everything you're doing to help educate the community. 
you recently mentioned, you know, the breadth of readers. Uh, I wanted to share a story with you. So I've been with uh, my girlfriend for almost nine years, and she is uh, her background is in social work. And, and I've learned that I've done a terrible job explaining what I do in 3D graphics and what the metaverse is because she's read your book and she understands the metaverse maybe better than me in, in many areas. So it's a great job with the accessibility uh, of your book. It's incredibly kind. The, the truth of the matter is, and this is probably the area that is hardest for me to confront when Mark says, would you change the book or what would you update? Which is every month as I go through more of these conversations, talking to more people from a different background, I get better at describing it. It kind of pains me to be better than ever at explaining this topic months after I released the book that hit so many people. But, you know, I, I like to joke that, uh, but sincerely... Snow Crash had a single author. The metaverse comes from a single person. I hope deeply that the metaverse has billions of co-authors and my ability to articulate, contribute, advance in any way, shape and form, which I think is really marginal compared to the work that you guys have done is itself a reflection of the number of different conversations and inputs I've had. Three years ago, I could never have pulled off any of this and most of which, that which I wrote was a reflection of conversations with others. Some were expert others were novice and curious interesting yeah and you've done a great job pulling it together and, and sharing it so thank you once again and and i did want to dive in a little bit because i mean in your book you, you really get into the necessary infrastructure technology and business alignment to build the metaverse and, and i thought just the way you broke down network and computing engines interoperability hardware and, and payment rails which is right on point um, and as you and our listeners know, um, Mark and I are really excited about all the development around metaverse standards in order to, to facilitate interoperability. And I was wondering, just as you reflect back on 2022, I mean, what, what developments are you most excited about? One of the primary questions that I receive, which I'm sure you both do all the time, is, okay, so if the metaverse isn't here, when will it be? And that's always a philosophical question. Like, when do you want to say mobile was here? When do you want to say that the internet was here? I always try to remind people, it's a question of when is what here for whom, why, and how? And the answer is mobile is here, but it's not fully developed. It hasn't ended. That's not how technology works. But to the extent in which we can say the metaverse is not yet here, and it will be, I think that the answer is standards. In the same way that you can say that the proto versions of the internet were early mainframes that were isolated on a local or wide area network, but eventually we had the standards for true global internetworking that was predicated upon the standards that would support coherent, consistent, comprehensive exchange of information through, and this is the operative word, autonomous systems and networks. And so when I take a look at 2022, there's a bunch of notable hallmarks, the amount of investment that went into startups in the metaverse space, the learnings we had with crypto, the learnings that we have with XR, the general market understanding of this theme, the general appreciation for the criticality of how the metaverse is designed. But I think that the single largest leap was that you can start to see that path towards achieving standards. Uh, achieving not just the technical standards, the technical conventions, but actual exchange between parties that many believed would never cooperate. 
You see that with the standards forum. But I think one of the most thrilling things that Meta has contributed thus far is actually just showing that you can get Teams, you can get Zoom, and you can get the Oculus platform to say, let's open up an exchange. Let's exchange avatars. Let's exchange video conferencing. Let's interoperate our productivity software while still providing data and privacy rights to the individual platform connecting in. That's the big achievement. It also makes me very hopeful that this is not a pipe dream. And to the extent it's technologically realizable, we may actually be happy about the way in which it manifests. Yeah, very well said. And yeah, I'm excited for the progress that we've made in, in standards. And I think we have a you know a lot a lot more to go, but it, it's looking good. Is there any you know one or two areas of, of investment that you think are, are critical as you look towards the next year or two? I mean, the fun thing about this topic is I think, you know, for the amateur observer, they interpret it as being very singular. They say it's a video game or they say it's VR hardware. And of course, we recognize that we're really talking about an ecosystem. And not only are we talking about an ecosystem, that is to say multiple different parts contributing one another, that each of the things that we even distill at that you know, single or double click level is so many other things. I'll use an example. Even when you're talking about VR as a part of the metaverse, we're not talking about VR, that's not where it ends. We're talking about optics, we're talking about battery, we're talking about chipsets, we're talking about network fidelity. We're talking about the standards which support the transmission of data. I have a difficult time actually prioritizing per se, which is more or less essential than another. I'm a little bit more focused on what I think are the primary you know, holdbacks uh, for which one right now I think is you know, regulation on the app store level. So Matthew, you, your background is in uh, you know finance and stock market. You you worked in a venture capital firm. So I'm curious to have your opinion on the what's happening. You know, especially these days at the end of 2022 in the stock market, it looks like a lot of stocks are being punished for being using the word metaverse, whether it's Unity, Roblox, um, and Meta, of course. So. Um, so does it tell us something about the public perception of the metaverse? How do we explain that? Because investors are supposed to be long-term investors, right? They're there. How do we explain that that change of a uh, change of mind of the of the street towards those stocks? So I think that there are a few different things that we can put in. First is to recognize that yes, many of the quote unquote metaverse oriented stocks are being hammered, uh, but it sits far beyond that. Microsoft is down 30%. Satya Nadella has said that it's an important part of their future. Amazon has never explicitly said that the metaverse is central to their future, but they've lost a trillion dollars in market cap. Shopify, Zoom, Peloton, all down by 75% or more. Evan Spiegel, I think, believes in the metaverse, but he doesn't like to use the term because he's one of those that distinguishes between augmented reality and screen-based 3D as being separate versions of a similar idea. But Snapchat is down 90%. The Nasdaq's down 30%. The truth of the matter is anytime we're talking about a capital-intensive, farther-away opportunity with risk, right? Because it's not just that it's far away and capital-intensive, but you don't know that those who are investing in it are going to be the likely winners. You're going to see disproportionate sell-offs and economic pressure. So if you say that tech overall is down 30%, it's sensible that those that are focused on a long-term, you know, speculative, uncertain future are going to see a greater sell-off. 
when it comes to meta specifically, there are a bunch of different non-metaverse-specific tensions. First and foremost, we know from their public statements that the total impact of Apple's ATT privacy changes will exceed 10 or 12 billion in cash flows in 2022 alone. The entirety of Meta's metaverse investment, in other words, has lost its funding purely because of App Store policy changes. The primary competitive challenge for Facebook remains TikTok. And overall, they're a business for which 90% of revenues depend on ad spend, most of which are oriented towards consumer products, all of which are being hammered by recessionary concerns and general macroeconomic headwinds. And so I wouldn't fully allocate the pressures that Meta is facing as being metaverse related. At the same time, we've seen very specific tactical issues on Facebook side that are worthy of investor scrutiny. If you can believe it, they spent $42 billion on share buybacks this year. The average price of the share they bought back was 3x its current price. In other words, you can fairly say that even if the $12 billion that they spent on Metaverse was clumsy or poorly allocated, they literally shredded nearly $30 billion on out-of-the-money share buybacks. And then there are broader questions as to whether or not the strategy and the tactics of their Metaverse ambition are going to pan out. And so I think in general, we're just seeing the you know, complexity of the Metaverse as a theme, its timing, and you know, mixed with a bunch of macroeconomic and company-specific issues. Yeah, and we had Mike Abrash on the podcast, and I think the problems you're trying to solve are very complex. You talked about optics and, uh, you know, there. And I think a lot of their spend go towards solving those hard problems and not put all their money in legless avatars like Facebook Horizon. I mean, it's a caricature of their investment. They are they're really taking the long-term route, and, uh, you know, Reality Labs is an interesting uh, uh, endeavor. I mean, it's... They've, they're trying to solve some of the hardest problems uh, that, that have to be solved. Oh, totally. I mean, one of the ways that I have found it's, you know, we've all seen it. Why do the avatars lack legs? Why are the graphics so poor? Why do they look like a Wii? And one of the reasons why I think, or one of the ways that I found it's really easy to articulate the difficulty of this challenge is to put it in contrast to the most powerful graphics computing device that the average person owns. Let's say a PlayStation 5. The PS5 weighs nine pounds. And despite that, it doesn't need a battery because it has constant access to the electrical grid. The PlayStation 5 weighs nine pounds and it doesn't need to bring its own screen. It connects to a screen. It also doesn't need sensors to capture your movement. It doesn't need to contend with suboptimal lighting conditions. That is to say, you never use your PlayStation out in the middle of a soccer field. And it doesn't need to connect to a mobile network. When you say we want to ask it to do far more things while also bringing its own screen, while also bringing its own battery without breaking your neck in weight or melting your face, and then to solve some of the most complex problems, which is diagnosing the environment and intuiting the positioning of your limbs, that is an extraordinarily hard problem. Meta is not alone in underestimating its difficulty. Google Glass launched nearly a decade ago. I've seen you know, quotes from Tim Sweeney around 2015, 2016, expecting it to become one of the great new computing platforms within that decade. 
the first HoloLens device came out in 2016. Magic Leap, of course, accumulated billions of dollars in valuation. This is a hard problem. And yet most people, while they underestimated its timeline to achievability, believe in how valuable it will be when it works. And the bull case here is Meta is essentially alone in trying to solve these problems. At the same time, there was this interesting conversation at the DealBook Live conference where Reed Hastings, the founder and CEO of Netflix, who used to be on the Facebook board, was asked what he thought of Meta's investments. And he said something to the effect of, we should all be thanking Mark for the innovations that he's financing, but he doubts they're going to be good for shareholders. Which is, he's saying, like, Mark may actually be financing the future that someone else will capitalize upon. I'm going to put you on the spot. So was it two years ago you created that uh, Metaverse tracking stock? We created an index about 18 months ago. It launched in June of 2021. So you have a prediction for next year? No, I don't think I could legally give one, but I, but I don't have one. We have always said, you know, to give, to give context, I, I collected a group of people, ex-Oculus, Grand Theft Auto, Amazon, NVIDIA, Square Enix, Spotify, Andreessen Horowitz, New York Times, and others. And we produced this index that basically had a methodology through which you could assess through public equities the growth of the metaverse. We have allocations to computing and networking infrastructure, to content-related services, to virtual platforms, to the standards operators, both common and de facto, right? Unity is not a common standard, but it effectively is from a deployment basis. And our thesis was that if you wanted to invest in the metaverse as a theme in the 90s, you could have picked Apple. You might alternatively have picked Research in Motion or Samsung or Nokia. And the returns from doing one versus another were extraordinarily different. But if you had a well-constructed basket of each of those companies that evolved over time to reflect those companies which soared and fell, that IPO'd and were acquired, the returns would be significant. And that's consistent with mobile, with social networking, with internet, with cloud, and so forth. And so the market in 2022 has not been kind. What the market in 2023 has in store is unclear, but we have always said this is a multi-decade, multi-trillion dollar transformation. And so that's where our time horizon sits. We've actually been very fortunate, even though the market has sold down quite a bit this year, we've had about 40 million in outflows as a percentage of total assets. That's about 5%. So 95% of those who have invested alongside have said, you know, we wish it would always go up instead of down, but we believe in the theme and we believe in the methodology. And so they're alongside. So, you know, another area that's been hit is crypto, especially with the fraud and bankruptcy of, of several large players. And Matthew, you know, we wanted to know, do you think Web3 will ever come back to where it was? And, and if so, any, any predictions on winners and losers? Will it ever come back to where it was is an interesting question. I mentioned earlier that at its peak, it was a little bit over $3 trillion in market value. Now, I think every reasonable person could say that there was no demonstrated value, demonstrated value in terms of revenue that was being created anew, costs that were being taken out of a system, or brand new things that were possible 
that got anywhere close to $3 trillion in value. Now, at the same time, you need not demonstrate that full value to be valued at that same amount, right? The value of something is the present value of its future cash flows. Your rental unit does not need to generate $2 million per annum to be worth $2 million. And yet the disconnect between the proven and even likely value and that $3 trillion was extraordinary. What's happened in the interim is a crash that most people believed was inevitable, but we've had a bunch of really important signature incidences, not just compression, not just the deflation in the NFT ecosystem, not just a reduction in speculation, uh, not just uncertain regulatory impacts. We have seen some use cases such as helium, which were often touted as the singular best examples of the technology be shown to have less evidence of product market fit than some were led to believe. Specifically, they had claimed customers that turned out to had never been customers or done a beta test years earlier. They listed as having been a supplier to a number of municipal governments in use cases that made sense, turned out not to be true. We have also seen instances of systemic risk that actually shows that even if this is a system which sits outside of the purview of governments and the Federal Reserve, the, the impacts of this technologically tethered system can often be worse and they're harder to correct. And then we've seen a number of other depository institutions, which with the lack of regulatory oversight have proven to be fraudulent to the tunes of billions of dollars of you know, consumer deposits lost. And so if you said it had never proven hundreds of billions of dollars of value, least of all trillions of dollars, and if anything, we have seen that some of the shiniest examples have proven to be negligent at best and nefarious at worst, it's going to be, take a long time to rebuild. There's no way around that. There's still optimism there. You'll find that this year, probably 25 or 28 billion in venture capital and private equity will be invested into the space. Last year, it was about 25 billion as well. Over the past seven years, there will be nearly 80 or 90 billion. Venture capital and private equity is still sitting on an estimated 60 to 120 billion that will be invested in startups in this space. I'm a deep believer in human ingenuity. You have a lot of people sitting on a lot of capital with brilliant engineers who are really excited about what they can build on this technology. Where does that lead is hard to know. But look, the the gap is rough. And the track record is rougher. What's interesting to me is that, you know, some of the some of the concept that the Web3 and the crypto company stands for stand for are good. I mean, this notion of abstracting the ownership of digital goods from a platform is 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 a great idea. I think, you know, it's sort of value for consumers. Uh, this idea of smart contract and giving secondary value to artists when, you know, when there is further usage of their art, are they good? Have you but the blockchain is fundamentally, as you kind of said, you know, designed to escape regulation, and there is a fundamental issue right there. Have you have you come across alternative technologies to implement those those good values? You know, that that abstraction of ownership or that secondary, those smart contracts um, approach. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that's interesting here is we're seeing, especially as the enthusiasm for crypto has subsided, you're seeing that those who believe deeply in quote unquote web three principles or decentralization become more vocal. Tim Berners-Lee, I'm sure you've seen, who continues to say, 
Web3 and Web3.0 are different. And he distinguishes it by saying Web3 is the crypto-based decentralized internet and Web3.0 is re-architecting the internet as we know it around decentralization, but not using blockchain technology. There are a bunch of different proposals out there to support that, and there have been for decades. They are certainly maturing, and I would say that one of the great contributions of crypto is it has elevated the public understanding of decentralization, the criticality of decentralization, and it is earning many of those companies that believe in the values but use alternatives. It's making it easier for them to raise capital. I think the thing that inspires so many in the community is to say that if one of the brilliant things about the internet was that it operated as a de facto public good, unowned by anyone, the protocol sat outside of a company, the problem was it didn't go far enough. And this is the Tim Berners-Lee perspective. You know, we have an IP address, for example, but your IP address is not used as your personal identity. Your login sits at the application layer. You have an identifier for your device, but you yourself sit at the application. Your social graph sits at the application. Your content is stored on your device and then a server owned by another company. And so lots are trying to say, how do we reimagine the internet to develop protocols that sit within the internet protocol suite or broadly adopted suites that store things that today sit at the application layer? IPFS, a decentralized file system, is the dominant way in which NFTs are minted right now, but does not require the blockchain. And so there are a whole bunch of these different technical solutions which are emerging. And it's it's not hard to imagine how cramming more into TCP IP or an equivalent out of the application layer would produce a healthier, more competitive internet. Absolutely. This is fascinating thoughts. I mean, we are, we're, we're hopeful that, you know, the adoption of real-time 3D as a medium will will generate a rethinking of the platforms and therefore the kind of the, the foundation of the internet as, as you discuss it. As we see in the Metaverse Standard Forum, you know, we're, we're at a very plumbing level and trying to align polygons and materials and, uh, <laughs> you know, and, and very basic physics. It's going to be, it's going to be a long road, but who, who would be a, and we can talk about a little bit about the big, the bigger guys, you know, who would be a thrust behind that effort in your opinion is, is the, for a vector of change at, at that level. But we haven't heard much from Amazon, for example, in the metaverse. I mean, they never talk about it. You know, do, do you see, do you foresee some of those big companies being capable of, a, of driving major change or it has to come from, from the bottom up? It's a good question. Amazon is a fascinating question here. After Meta had changed its name, you'll find that Amazon was rewriting truly hundreds and then thousands of different job descriptions to focus on the metaverse theme. Their advanced graphics division and parts of the graphics-based computing division of AWS are talking about the theme, but they haven't come out overtly to say what they think about it and how they're going to contribute and participate in the ecosystem. I haven't seen Andy Jassy talk about it, for example, and you'll see that the head of the devices and games business has said that they don't believe in the theme. So you can tell that this is an organization that has differences of opinion, which is very Amazonian, but no concentrated strategy. Again, very Amazonian. When it comes to who's going to build it, look, I do think that if you take a look at 
Microsoft and Meta, two, of course, contributors to the Metaverse Standards Forum, who do not operate the dominant operating systems of 2022. They are working hard. They're trying to be good contributors. They are opening up. Microsoft has made a public commitment in a letter dedicated to regulators to essentially unbundle the entirety of their hardware ecosystem, including the Xbox platform. You can now cloud stream using GeForce or previously Stadia to the browser on the Xbox device without using the Xbox Live identity system, without using the Xbox payment service, while taking advantage of all of the local hardware that primarily being a controller, you're seeing with Meta pretty permissive policies when it comes to who owns which account and which service and software. I don't think it's a coincidence that the company which was most displaced on the operating system layer now believes in openness, having been closed for about a decade and a half in the 90s and 2000s. I don't think it's a coincidence that the one member of the big five tech companies without an operating system also believes that we need to unbundle the operating system. But if that's their motivation for creating an open interoperable metaverse, that's great. More people to the cause. At the end of the day, however, I think it's primarily, you know, upstarts that are going to be the advocates for change, building the standards. They can move faster. You know, they have more to win, more to gain. And they're scrappier. Yeah, that's interesting. I guess a lot, you know, lots of different motivations can still motivate the idea for open and interoperable metaverse. Um, so, Matthew, you know, you're speaking about Microsoft, and I loved your story at the start of the podcast on how you you were able to to tweak your book before it hit the press. But you know, now that we've went through most of 2022, could you tell us, you know, how you think Microsoft and Activision Blizzard deal uh, could could impact things? Well, I think that that public declaration is really interesting because it tells you something about how significant Microsoft considers the metaverse to be. Frankly, when it comes to what the relevance of Activision Blizzard, its IP, its tech, its engine is for the metaverse, I, I struggle to actually see what that means on a practical basis. We are talking about thousands of developers who are expert at designing virtual worlds, who are experts at network operating centers, for virtual existence, who know how to monetize these spaces, who know how to fight against the limitations of the internet, the limitations of a local device, but that's still a you know step or two away from the metaverse itself. And so that's actually less clear to me. Gotcha. So what about Google? I don't think we, we spoke much about Google. How, how do you see their position in the metaverse? I mean, there are some obvious examples. Of course, there are more Android users than users of any other operating system globally. They have a system that is, you know, frankly, still limited, but designed to actually directly compensate more contributors in the value chain, mobile networks, as well as the handset manufacturers, some of their content partners, even some of the fixed line operators. That's a good system. And of course, they operate what is in theory an open source platform. But I don't think that they have a clear strategy, or at least I don't see one yet. I do think that it's notable that earlier this year, Clay Bavor, the VP or SVP in charge of AR, VR, and holography, was reorged to be a direct report to Sundar. He was also given all of their special projects division and has clearly been empowered to 
invest in hardware. And so you can see that within Google, even though there's not a formal declaration to build out the metaverse, there's not a formal strategy, the number of products that they have is still, you know, one to two clicks away from what we think of the metaverse to be. And of course, they've struggled with both game engines and game development, as well as Stadia. It's clear that they're focused here. And I think as much as individuals focus on Google Glass as a failed product or their early endeavors with VR, they actually never shut down those programs. They have been quietly, if modestly, at work building AR and VR hardware. They've released another two different editions of Google Glass. They've released four different total public prototypes in virtual reality. And this year, they're starting the commercial deployment of Project Starline, their volumetric video holography display. But again, we're talking about a company that has many assets, has a bunch of special projects, is clearly prioritizing the area, but doesn't seem to have a clear strategy or even a specific product for the metaverse as yet. So one of the big assets of Google is the Chrome web browser. And it feels to me that we're not seeing any you know, as 3D becomes commoditized, we've got hardware. I mean, we run a very powerful device. We haven't seen, you know, Web 3D or 3 in the browser, you know, grow and shine the way we would expect it to. And case in point, I mean, it's very still very complex to develop for those browsers. So who would have an interest to see browser-based uh, 3D? You'd think Google would have a, a strong interest. They don't own any graphics platform anyway. And with the dominance in the operating system world, I mean, you know, leaning on the web could be, could be, a, you know, a valid strategy for them. I'm, so I'm, I'm always, I'm always not surprised, but I wonder why we're not seeing more from the browsers. I think it's development is slow. There could be security reasons, but I think, I suspect there is a lack of motivation from the people who do browsers. I think it's a good question. There's probably a few different answers that we could intuit. First and foremost, it's important to recognize that Google's interest in Chrome-based experiences and computing actually seems to have declined more recently, exacerbated by pandemic tensions. I think they've announced that they've canceled, basically canceled, the Pixelbook. They're still doing some of their devices, but they're no longer issuing new editions. That's fascinating because at the start of the pandemic, as a number of children were being homeschooled, but even in the years that preceded, a lot of parents were really excited about the fact that they could purchase a two or $250 PC effectively, that if their kid lost or damaged was not the end of the world like a MacBook was, and was lightweight, they could pick it up, go into the classroom, run nearly anything that was designed without actually having to you know, manage the installation, the login, the credentialing system. And the security was just considered superior. You weren't gonna have, you know, malware and spyware. But it seems like that hasn't endured, partly because iPads have become incredibly cheap. If you can believe it, the lowest end iPad is now $250. The first iPhone was $500, and we've had nearly 80% cost inflation ever since. So really, the price of a entry-level iOS device is down 75%, and that has just crammed a lot of room out for the Pixelbook. When you say that the signature product is no longer growing, and then you would say that to some extent, web-based computing is in tension with their absolute global dominance on the Android operating system layer. 
it kind of makes sense that Google hasn't leaned in as they might have, especially when you consider that the monetization differential between building out Chrome and Chromium and others was only widening, right? The Android ecosystem has become more lucrative over time. And then the third reason, you know, the first being Pixelbook, the second being uh, the overall monetization. The third is, look, the iOS challenge is real. The fact that you can't have the Chrome engine on an iOS device, iOS is 90% of teens, it's 66% of American smartphone owners, it's 75% of global app store re revenue or mobile gaming revenue. It's hard to imagine what you're going to start to build there that can't be blocked. And I think that those are all kind of relevant challenges. When you're saying who would have the most to gain, honestly, the answer is probably Unity. I'm surprised that they haven't leaned in more. It's kind of a connects topic to the, the App Store and the controversy over the App Store fees. I mean, do you have a, you know, do you think Apple and Google can hold to their, onto their 30% in 2023? I do. And there are a few different ways in which you can look at this. Number one is if you take a look at the cash flow that Apple is generating on a monthly basis just from games, it's about five to six billion dollars. That's incredible because it literally means that when people say, how are they fighting the tide, right? Why are they fighting Dutch regulators on a specific category when they're getting fined weekly or biweekly? The answer is you can calculate how much money they get from every additional day that they drag it out. And it's to the tune of tens and hundreds of millions of dollars, not in revenue, in cash flow. The incentives there are extraordinary. The second thing that's so relevant there is to recognize the number of different levers that they have to maintain that fee. We've seen this in the Netherlands. We've seen this in South Korea. We've seen this with India. And now we've seen it with Japan, which is when forced to open up their payment systems, they then come up with a new app store charge, which is equivalent to the old 30% fee, less the payment processing fee of two to three and a half percent. The challenge with that is while most governments around the world are finding the bundling of payments with identity, with software distribution, with operating system, with hardware to be anti-competitive, it takes Apple a few minutes to change the policy to shift the primary point of taxation Whereas it takes governments, you know, at minimum months, but more typically two to three years to come out with a policy for that. When you take a look at the government response around the world to Apple's maneuvers, no one's tricked, right? The Dutch have said very clearly, the fact that you are willing to pay a five or $10 million fine every two weeks is proof that you have a monopoly because most businesses would be crippled by that. The fact that you can have the exact same revenue, even as we try to open up a given layer of competition within minutes is proof of the monopoly allegations that led to the legislation to begin with. But that starts the legislative process all over again. And so look, I'm optimistic that it's a matter of time. I'm pessimistic as to how quickly it's going to be. And even when you take a look at you know, the Epic versus Apple trial here, it typically takes 9, 10, 11 months to get a new finding. And we've still got one to two more different appeals processes that could occur. When you take a look in the EU, which seems likely to crack down first and most, it took about two years for the Digital Markets Act to be agreed upon, for it to then be proposed, and then for it to be rolled out. And that 
you know, sucks. But certainly heat is picking up. Talking about the devil, you know, we don't know much about Apple's strategy and, you know, they never use metaverse, more augmented reality. What are the odds that they can actually further their monopoly in the domain of real-time 3D in the metaverse? Are we seeing evidence of a revolutionary product and tangible reason why they could have a leg up on their competition? I think so. I mean, one of the things that's really interesting is when you take a look at Apple when they came out with the iPhone, right? Most of the iPhone was using components that they were licensing from third parties that they did not create. And they were producing a device at really minuscule scale, which meant that it was fairly expensive on a per component basis. And you know, struggling with just general supply chain challenges, right? Like just how good can it be because you're not developing it internally and so forth. And so the Apple that might produce an XR or AR or VR device is very different actually than the Apple that we saw in 2006. They are producing billions of their own computing chips or socks every year. Their supply chain has tuned up. Almost all of the high value parts are now internally designed, whereas they used to use Broadcom and Wolf and Qualcomm and so forth, uh, Gorilla Glass. And so if anyone can crack the XR device, it does seem likely to be them. They have the brand, the manufacturing, the computing expertise, the supply chain, and most importantly, the scale to pull this off. One of the reasons why the Oculus devices are so expensive is because almost all of the production supply that Meta has to tune up for those devices is only for those devices, which are running in the you know millions of units per year. They're not just saying, let's print out some custom versions of the A15. And so that's the hardware question. Can they produce something incredible that's new? The second question is just, can they extend their, you know, quote unquote monopoly? And this kind of gets to why the App Store thing is so important. When Apple started to surge in the early 2000s, the primary point that people would make is their brand is extraordinary. Their industrial design is extraordinary, but they cut above through the brilliant integration of hardware and software, most notably the operating system. The Apple bundle in 2022 is not hardware and operating system. It's hardware and operating system. It's first-party software. It's third-party software distribution. It's third-party software standards. It's payments. It's API policies and its identity. It's data privacy and more. That is so powerful. It's why when we talk about can you unbundle payments, the question isn't can you unbundle payments, it's can you unbundle each of those things so that any individual action can't be immediately compensated for elsewhere. But the result of that is irrespective of whether or not they have the best XR hardware, irrespective of whether or not XR is ready in 2023 or 2028, the inevitable, inexorable beneficiary of the metaverse, and by the metaverse, I mean any incremental time online, inside virtual worlds, socializing, spending money, doing anything, goes to Apple. And it's hard to see failing regulatory intervention or a brilliant product that comes out of nowhere despite the aforementioned manufacturing challenges. It's hard to see how that stops. That to me is actually one of the most powerful arguments, which is the world, whether that's Epic or Roblox or Cesium or Meta, are investing tens of billions of dollars to try and build this great new thing. 
And if they can pull it off, the primary profit beneficiary will be Apple. It's a good thesis for the stock. It's not the most bold thesis for the economy. Yeah, and it's, it'll be a segue into my last uh, pointed question. I think uh, I think it was in the book you made the case about Roblox and how much, you know, how much money they are actually uh, feeding to Apple. The other thing you call out about Roblox, which I think is a fascinating company, is their commitment to R and D investment. And you know, got their Q three results out there. They got hammered because of cost and. Have you seen, you know, you had high expectation given the high level of R&D investment. Have you seen, again, tangible out, outcomes from that investment from, from Roblox and uh, the maturity of that platform? Well, so the most important thing to do when evaluating Roblox's productivity is to take a look at the engagement figures first and foremost. Every single quarter, nearly every single month, they hit new highs in engagement hours and in users. They're now sitting at 59.9 million daily active users. Their monthly active users exceeds a quarter of a billion people. They're now sitting at a peak of about four and a half to 4.7 billion hours of monthly engagement. The Roblox stock is way down and their bookings are down, but that stands in clear contrast to other supposed pandemic darlings. Zoom down 90%, Shopify down 60%. Uh, I'm trying to think of which other Peloton down 95%. You can see that the Roblox platform is becoming better, more remunerative for independent developers with developer exchange fees going up, more popular, more used, and more importantly, more global. The specific returns from that R&D investment are more diffuse. We're seeing the deployment of their immersive advertising platform. That's going to be fascinating, partly because in order to be profitable, they need to figure out a way to generate more revenue per minute of use. And unless you can get users to spend you know, 30% more per hour, that's going to be challenging. But if they can monetize through ads, that starts to go away. Crucially, you don't have to pay an app store fee yet for advertising. But we can't see on the R&D side yet, but it's extraordinary. This year, they will probably spend six or 700 million in R&D. The five-year cost to produce Red Dead Redemption 2 was about 250 million. The entire Sony interactive entertainment budget is 1.2 billion. And that spans all of their first party systems and engines and software, their network operating centers, as well as their investments in future hardware, both on the VR and PlayStation 6 side. And so that gives you a sense of the scale that they're investing. I have to ask, you know, what book are you working on next? I'm not working on a on another book right now. I I'm writing two blog posts. One is actually about the state of the entertainment ecosystem in 2023, a reflection of what's happening to the major gaming companies after this downturn, the alterations in the streaming wars, the growing ambitions of Disney as Disney Plus expands. And then, you know, I'm constantly tempted to ask this question, what can we, you know, it gets to the top of this conversation. Everyone conflates the metaverse with meta. And I have never written about meta in the context of the metaverse because I don't want to perpetuate that. But I think given some of the topics that we discussed today, there actually are a bunch of learnings to be had there. And so I'm thinking of exploring some of that. I will tell you, you know, coming to individual stats, one thing that I think is remarkable that I learned very recently, it's something I would put in my book if I wrote it today. Since 2016, 
Meta has acquired 6% of submarine cable infrastructure for the back global internet backhaul globally. By the end of 24, they will own or partially own 13% of global internet backhaul infrastructure. In the African continent, they will own and cooperate 47 different country connects and an estimated 25 to 40% of all fiber optic cabling in the continent. And so this starts to explain you know, where the money is going, certainly. It starts to tell you a little bit about how far out they are thinking and one of the tensions between short-term performance and long-term. But it kind of gets to some of the standards questions. Um, you know, we've often asked this question of what standards for TCP IP and traffic routing, I talk a lot about the book, about the border gateway protocol, need to be updated. And the challenge with many of these standards, gosh, Patrick, I'm now, you asked such a simple question and I'm running. But like we talk about border gateway protocol and how do you get that updated to support real-time traffic? And the problem with some of these standards groups is if you take a look at updating BGP, how do you update BGP? Everyone has to get into a room. Everyone has to agree. Then hundreds of carriers around the world have to adopt it. Dozens of different modem manufacturers have to adopt it. Handset manufacturers have to adopt it and moreover. And so what I think is happening with Meta in Africa is they're starting to say, well, if we have 20 to 40% of fiber, we can start to deploy our own protocols in the region. Then service and application providers who want to work with us, build on top of us, connect into our systems, adopt our private or proprietary protocols. And that's one of the ways in which the standards process begins, right? You have some of the most populous countries on earth that are running on these metaverse-oriented standards that were not built in cooperation, but through the scale of the investment at the baseline infrastructure layer, then deployed against that infrastructure for strategic purposes, end up becoming mandatory standards beyond that. And so I'm thinking about writing about that theme. Matthew, I think both of those blogs would be fantastic. So we look forward to reading them. So Matthew, I believe this is your third time on our podcast. So you know how we like to finish up the episode, which is with a, a shout out to a person or an organization or, or even more than one. Well, I would shout out my partner, Elise, who this year I have been so incredibly busy. The book was so much more than I anticipated. I had originally thought that when the book was done in January, February, it would be mostly done. And the marketing, the touring, the follow-on work, the press events were extremely intensive. And she was incredible. Just so supportive. Would not have been possible without her. And she was so understanding. Well, thank you so much, Matthew Ball. Uh, the book was fantastic. I think, uh, you know, can't recommend it uh, enough because it gets you to think about all the complexity of the metaverse. And I think it's, you know, I, I think for me, it's a positive. I think, you know, it lists all the problems we have to solve and we will solve them and, and get to the metaverse. So uh, this is the end of season three. You were, uh, you were with us at the first ever episode of this podcast. We're so happy to have you. We are trying to professionalize this podcast. We're trying to... I'd be better. We have a little bit of an improved social presence. We created a Twitter account, believe it or not, um, and a LinkedIn page so that people can find us and talk to us uh, more easy. So for season four, we plan on bringing a more uh, interesting speaker because I think that's, the, that's our secret sauce is just get the right people behind a microphone. 
And uh, so in season four, in 2023, we'll do more of that and uh, we'll try to be uh, to have more conversations and uh, more, more interaction with the people who listen to this podcast. We, we have some numbers, we don't want to share them because we're not, we don't understand what they mean, but they're pretty good too. So we're very, very happy with that. So I want to thank everybody who's listening and supporting us. Uh, you know, have a fantastic end of year. Keep on, uh, keep on listening to the podcast. Keep on telling us what you think. And uh, we'll see you for season four in 2023. Matthew Wolf, thank you very much again. You've been uh, a fantastic guest. Thank you, guys. I love listening and looking forward to the next season. And Patrick, happy holidays. Yes, happy holidays to everyone. Thank you, everyone. We'll be back in 2023.